All right, so it's great to be back. I don't like being gone two weeks in a row, but uh, we had an amazing time. Now, I anticipated that it was going to be very obvious when I came up the stairs that I wasn't completely 100% right here. But there was, I had this miraculous, seemingly miraculous healing last night. I attribute it to Alicia and because she laid her hands on my on my ankle, uh, or not my ankle, on, my, on the calf over here. But let me tell you what happened to me just, well, I'm not going to tell you right now. I'm going to tell you in a minute. But there's a reason I have a limp. So we'll get to that in a minute. But there's more important news today. There's a reason that I am extremely in a good mood today. Let's say it that way. I'm in a very good mood today. Because today is the first official Sabbath of our new associate pastor, Molly Duper. So, Molly's here and Carl is here and, wait, I have it on my phone. What's his name? Wesley is here. So you guys come up here for a minute. We want everybody to see you guys. And Alicia, come up here and join me because this is exciting. This is, uh, well, none of us are ready for the amazing things that Molly's going to do here, but it's going to be great. And it's good to have Carl here. And if you got your online church bulletin, you got some good information about these guys. But if you didn't, we'll just give you a little context here. Um, Carl, in particular, has Colorado roots. You're from here. And many of you know him already and know of the Duper family from this area a long time. Molly, where are you from originally? Minnesota. Minnesota, yeah. So I knew it was one of those upper Midwest places. And so she is from Minnesota and kind of came through the whole Union College context and was involved out here for a while doing call porter work, right? Okay, so she had experience here. I first met Molly when I was in Florida, when I was pastor at Forest Lake. She was working at what was then called the Florida Hospital Church, which is now Whole Life Community. But anyway, uh, she was working there with the young adults, and we had a day where we, we just did activities together with the staff down there. And uh, too much information? Just get to the point? Yeah. All right. Thank you. It's good to have a daughter here. And so, um, so I w we were at that, and we sat at the tables, and we were having lunch, and I happened to sit close to Molly, and I literally thought that day I would love to pastor with her someday, because she's a really impressive person. But that was what? That was probably 2016 or yeah. 2015, yeah, somewhere in there. Okay, so, so I met her then, and then she went over to, uh, to Spring Meadows, which was another church in the area, and uh, it was really blessed there. And then they moved out here, and she worked at New Day for a while. And uh, then after that, most recently, she's been interim pastor in Colorado Springs, so helping that congregation get along. And they were very disappointed when that came to an end and she came here. So, but we are excited that she's here, and uh, we, she officially started August 1, so this is our first official Sabbath, and uh, we met uh, on Thursday and talked for a couple hours and and uh, it's, this is going to be good times. This is going to be good things. So I'm excited that they're here. And Alicia and I want to have a prayer for you. So Alicia, I think you have a couple words of blessing you want to speak. Is that true? You looked up the psalm. I, uh, 
I, I may have assumed too much. I didn't bring the psalm with me, but I was reading this morning and it said, may you be blessed to be a blessing. And so I'm just praying over Wesley and Carl and Pastor Molly that you would not just be blessed, but be a blessing. And God's favor would be around you, that his protection, that this little guy would grow up to love Jesus every day of his life. We're so excited to have you guys here. So we're going to say a prayer for them, and Alicia will start, and I will close. Father, it's so happy to have Pastor Molly, Carl, and Wesley, and little one on the way in our church. Thank you for helping that happen. Lord, we ask your blessing over them in every way, and while they're here and serve, and while Pastor Molly especially ministers to our kids, may she feel your pleasure in her as she does your will. Thank you so much for their presence among us, and Lord, may we be a blessing to them. Amen. And Lord, continuing in prayer, just I thank you so much for this ministry family. And I pray your protection, your grace, uh, your insight, and uh, gifts of leadership uh, that, that will enable Molly to contribute to this community and help us together to grow, to be the people you would have us be in this season, in this place, at this time. I thank you, Lord, that this day has come about, and uh, we trust you for everything going forward. May we do all things according to your will and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. Good deal, huh? And then there's the second reason I'm in a really good mood today. It's really the first reason, but guess who's back in church? Alicia. So that has been a long time. What was going to be a short visit turned into a month and a half. So by the time we finally got back here, it was good. So, all right. So, uh, we introduced Carl and Molly. Oh, a little update on the schedule. So now we're into August and we're starting to get back into the school season and everybody's wild summers are calming down. So just to give you a little idea of what's going on in the weeks ahead. I'm here today and then I'll be here and speak on the 12th. And we're looking at, I can't promise it 100%, but I think this is what we're going to do. I think we're going to have a communion service on the 19th. Because we haven't done that in a while, and we need to do that, and, and, uh, but we're going to try to get that together and do that on the 19th. Uh, the 26th is going to be a special Sabbath, uh, a Vista Ridge Education Sabbath. So as the school gets underway and things get going there, we want to have an acknowledgement day uh, and pray for the teachers and all of those things. So that'll be on the 26th of this month. Then I'm going to be gone again on September 2. But then after that, it should be good. I don't know of anything else going on uh, the rest of that month. So that gives you a little idea of what's going on in the Sabbath ahead. I appreciate Tony for his week speaking for us. And I don't see Mark today, so uh, maybe he didn't survive last week after he spoke. But uh, no, I appreciate both of them for being willing to take the last couple of weeks. And uh, th that will happen again. So be warned. All right, good. Okay, so let's pray. 
Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day, for this chance for us to gather in this place. Thank you for the blessing of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us minds to understand. Lord, we want to do your will. We want to live in a way pleasing to you. Help us understand what that would mean as we take on this story. In Jesus' name, amen. So we start today with the brief explanation for the minor limp that I have. It's actually not bad at all. I'm actually doing really well now. But uh, yesterday I was really hobbling around. It didn't look good at all. But what happened to me was this. So Alicia and I spent the last two Sabbaths in the week in between uh, in Newfoundland, which is the farthest east point on the North American continent. And uh, it's actually quite remarkable. It's, uh, it's, if you fly from Denver to Toronto, it'd take you about three and a half hours. But then to go from Toronto to St. John's, Newfoundland is another three and a half hours. So it's as much further east from Toronto as we are west of Toronto. So it's way out there. Three and a half hours is the time zone. I, I didn't really know there were half hour time zones till I went there. But anyway, so three and a half hours different time zone. And we were there for the camp meeting. Alicia spoke uh, on, on grief and mental health in the mornings and did a wonderful job. And then I spoke in the evenings uh, for the evening programs. And it was a great adventure, very intense. Um, I spoke 10 times in nine days. So they have amazing tolerance out there. They were able to withstand that onslaught. But... Uh, so, so we had this great experience, but we scheduled ourselves one extra day after it was over to just spend a little time in St. John's, which we did. And again, if you saw your online bulletin, you saw a couple of the pictures from where we were there. And Alicia and I had gone for a walk in this area called Signal Hill. We came down. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stairs that come down onto this lower area, and then there's cliffs from there off to the sea. The beautiful spot. We had hiked down the endless staircase, and we were in this, this kind of open area uh, where there was this little rise and then a couple of chairs that the city had set out there for people to sit in. And, and we were engaged at that moment with a couple people there taking some pictures, and I thought, I'm just going to run up this little hill. You know, it was, it was really not much higher than the ground of the platform, but it was kind of steep. And I thought, if I go up slow, I might slip. I don't want to slip. So I'm just going to get a little momentum and just run right up those, that little hill. And then I'm going to sit in the chair. So I started off, and I took a couple steps. And right when I got to the push-off step for going up that hill, it felt like someone hit me in the back of the calf with a rock about this big. And I thought, how in the world did I kick a rock into the back of my leg? Because I didn't feel my foot kick it, but surely that must have happened. And I had enough momentum that I got to the top, and I stopped at the top, and I was right by the chair, so I sat down in the chair, and then I decided I'm going to start taking stock of this situation to find out what just happened to me. And what it was, I think, was a reminder of my age. I'm not quite as quick. And I need to not make the same demands of my muscles as I did at another time in my life. 
But apparently what I had done was in that acceleration and in that stretching, I pulled something in the middle of that muscle. And it just kind of felt like a little pop. Now, I don't think I literally tore anything. I think it was just, just a pull. And it set me to pondering. And, and uh, you know, if this is useful to you, if you ever hurt yourself, the first step in a scenario like that is you assess your situation before responding. So I sat in the chair and I thought, okay, am I all right or not? And I decided I better stand up and find out. And so I did, and it turned out that if I was right over it, it really didn't hurt that bad. It only hurt when it got stretched out behind me. So I could kind of walk like this. I mean, it wasn't fast. That's like half speed. But I could do it, and it really didn't hurt that bad as long as I didn't get off balance. So the next step was determine the resources to deal with this situation. So on the one hand, I had limited mobility, but on the other hand, I had Alicia. So whatever happened, there was no rule she wouldn't break to get me off that mountain at that point. So she was going to get me back one way or another. So I knew I was fine, but I just wasn't sure how hard it would be for her. And then the third point is, as always true, don't be too proud to ask for assistance when you hurt yourself. And... Uh, so it turned out I was okay, and we were able to go up the stairs. I was just slow, and it was good enough that we continued, we even continued our walk and saw some amazing views, and it was, it was a really good time, but since then, it's kind of been this little nagging thing. It was kind of hard getting through the airports and things like that, but not too bad, and I'm actually a lot better today, so I feel really good about that. But, but here's the thing, and I, I just want to kind of bridge from that story because here I was, a human with a need, and Alicia is so good at just jumping into those spots. When someone has a need, she just naturally moves in there. And I think that willingness to address human need is often an indication of, of a person within whom the Holy Spirit dwells, whether they know it or not. I think there's a lot of people in the world, many who go by the name of Christian, but also others, who have that spirit-given willingness to help people in need. And I think that's an indication uh, of, of the presence of God's spirit in someone. But now let's take this a step further. What about a willingness to break a rule to help someone in need? One way we could look at that is I guess that kind of depends on personality type. There's the types that don't mind breaking rules at all and will gladly break a rule to help somebody in need. There are the other types that are kind of sticklers for the rules and they're like, I'm sorry that your leg is hurt, but you weren't supposed to run up that hill like that, so good luck. You know, they're a little more harsh about how it goes. Is there a line here? I mean, do we just throw out rules or, or how does that go? I mean, of course there's a line somewhere because there's always the examples of the absurd. Uh, we had one of those this summer. We were trying to fly one of Ariel's friends, Giovanna, from Denver to North Carolina. It was when we went to Virginia. And uh, she went to the airport, and if you've flown out of Denver anytime recently, particularly early in the morning, you know that it is mayhem. The, the line for security is infinitely long, um, and then all kinds of things happen. So 
So while Giovanna was in the endless security line, after she had gotten her boarding pass from the counter, they changed the gate. Well, she didn't know they changed the gate because she was in the security line. And by the time she got to the security line, went to the gate where her flight was supposed to be, it wasn't there anymore. They said, oh no, that gate has changed. So she and a group of other people ran to the other gate and arrived one minute after they decided they were closing the door. At which point they told them, no, I'm sorry, you can't get on. You said, but, but you changed the gate. That's why we're late. They said, we made an announcement. Well, we were in the security line during the announcement. You can't hear that. But, but no, they held to that rule, so we had to go get Giovanna, take her back, take her again the next day, pay the extra cost for it anyway. You get the idea. So we're not breaking the rule, even though it's our fault. So yeah, I think we can agree that's dumb. You need to break that rule when it's your fault. But then there's the other things, another one kind of like that. You ever try to paint your fence the color your homeowners association doesn't allow? Yeah. But then on the other hand, as much as we might hate that, we don't want someone to turn their suburban home into a chicken and goat farm, right? So there's a line there somewhere. The smoothest scenarios is when we have a general agreement on what the unwritten rules should be and we all pretty much obey those rules without having to talk about them. That's the smoothest. Because there's the written rules, but there's always a much longer list of unwritten rules. And this is why we have such a great challenge whenever we attempt to engage multiculturalism or multi-generational involvement. The problem is, at its core, we don't agree on the unwritten rules. And it's at times like this that we tend to get very serious about making the unwritten rules into written rules, and then we become very energetic in enforcing them. And I get it, because sometimes we need written rules and written rule enforcement in order to get along. Most rules are established for the purpose of serving the greater good. But the problem is this, sometimes the rules get out of hand and cease to be our servants and become our masters. Sometimes the rules don't age well or they were not written with the whole picture in mind. Or perhaps new people have come into the scene that the rules did not consider when they were written. So what do we, as conscientious believers, do about rules? I'm not for throwing them out, because often they're the only thing that keeps us from open hostility. But under what circumstances is it okay to rethink the rules or perhaps even violate the rules? And can we violate a rule once but then enforce it again later? And to what degree should we consider human needs when it comes to enforcing the rules? 
I don't make the rules, I just enforce them. All of which sets our context for what we want to consider from the book of Luke today. So we're going on, we spent time in Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 5, now we're at the first part of Luke chapter 6. So I encourage you, take one of those Bibles in front of you, I'm going to read out of that same version, the English Standard Version. And we're in Luke chapter 6, verse 1. And there we find these words. On a Sabbath, while Jesus was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? So once again here, we see Jesus and his disciples facing the charge that you guys just aren't very holy. I mean, this is building up here. We've got Jesus and his disciples eating with tax collectors and sinners. That's not holy. Jesus and his disciples not fasting at the right times like the holy people. And now they're breaking the Sabbath. I've always found this story to be, be intriguing. For in it, we see Jesus and his disciples coming up against what I would consider to be ridiculous Sabbath legislation. Now, let me say, uh, in that context, ridiculous Sabbath regulations, in that context, as a lifelong Sabbath keeper, there are two file folders in my brain. There is a file folder in my mind called appropriate Sabbath regulations without which Sabbath becomes exactly like any other day. But there is also another folder entitled ridiculous Sabbath regulations, some from the Pharisees of old, some from the Pharisees of modern times, and some items that once lived in my folder called appropriate Sabbath regulations that have now migrated to the other folder. For the record, my second folder has gotten fatter in recent years and the first one thinner. What I'm not sure about is whether that's a good thing or not or what I might have lost along the way. But let's get back to this story. It seems to me the right answer for Jesus to give at this point is to say to them, your Sabbath rules are wrong. Plucking and eating a little grain along the way is not against the rules. You need to change your rules. This would then keep the focus of the discussion on the terms of the infraction and seek to resolve the issue by addressing the list of rules and correcting what's wrong with the list. What do I mean? I mean this. Okay, large-scale harvesting, still wrong on the Sabbath. Plucking heads of grain, okay, as long as you eat it immediately, don't pick more than 30 and don't store more than a pocket full for later. That seems reasonable, right? But do you see what I just did there? Now I'm the one multiplying rules. And you see, Jesus is smarter than me, which is a very good thing. He knew that this approach to address them on this ground was a dead end. So instead, he goes another way, a way that bothered me for years, 
until I finally understood what he was actually saying. And for the record, he uses a story in his defense of his disciples that frankly I've never thought was a good one. Or at least never until I actually started to understand what he was doing. So Luke 6, verse 3. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? Do you remember this story? This is a story fraught with problems, if you ask me. Let me remind you of its initial context, and then we're actually going to spend some time in this story that Jesus references, and its rather ugly aftermath. You see, what is taking place is David is in Saul's house. Saul is king. David has been invited there. He's won a number of battles. He's become quite famous, and Saul has become concerned that David is looking to overthrow him and take over the kingdom. But Jonathan says, no, there's no problem. It's not real. David says, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's real. Jonathan checks it out. They set up a plan. Turns out it is absolutely real. Saul wants to kill David. Jonathan comes back to David, says to him, you're right. You need to get out of here. They have this moment where they covenant together to, to be a blessing to each other's families long term, however this comes out. And David runs away. He leaves in a hurry. He has no supplies and he is in need. But instead of being honest about what's going on, he goes to the priest and he begins to weave a tale. So if you want to see this, you've got to go to 1 Samuel chapter 21. So if you go over there to that Old Testament story, 1 Samuel chapter 21, this is the story that Jesus is referencing in response to the Pharisees. So 1 Samuel 21, beginning in verse 1, Then David came to Nob, to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? See, Ahimelech had an idea in his mind, this is unusual for the servant of the king to show up by himself with nothing. Verse 2, And David said to him, Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. Okay, we're already got a problem here, right? I mean, first of all, the king has not charged David with a special mission. So at the outset, it's a, it's a fabrication. And there's no mention in the text so far that David's actually meeting anyone or even has anybody with him. So from an honesty standpoint, we're not off to a good start, are we? Is false pretense a good place to start a story about rule breaking? Let's go on. Verse 4. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Okay, so 
I always find this answer amusing, particularly in the context of our day. I mean, you know, women, right? Nothing makes you unholy like a woman, right? Oh, all right, don't stone me. Just kidding. Don't stone me. What's happening here is this. The question has to do with rules, which is ironic because we're about to break rules. But this question has to do with, with you were not supposed to eat the holy bread uh, if you, well, you weren't supposed to eat the holy bread at all. But, but the whole idea here is that men who had had intimate relations with women were not considered ceremonially clean. So that's his question. And if you want details on that, you can go to Leviticus 15 or Exodus 19. It's not that women are inherently unholy and need to be avoided. So that's not what he's saying there. But that's interesting that that's what he brings up. That's the question the priest asks. So let's go on, because this story, it's going to get worse, not better. 1 Samuel 21, verse 4, And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us, as always, when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? David just keeps digging this hole deeper. Now, I'm going to give David the benefit of the doubt and assume that what he's saying about not having been with women is true regarding him for the last few days. And I'm also going to give him the benefit of the doubt that there may, in fact, have been some others that he was meeting, not because there's any reference to it in 1 Samuel, but because Jesus suggests there were others when he uses this story as an example. But the rest of what he is saying is pure fabrication. He's made this whole thing up. So why would David accept holy bread? He knows it's against the rules. Leviticus chapter 24. I'm going to read you the rules. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 5. You shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. <clears throat> two tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf. And you shall set them in two piles. Six in a pile on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day, Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever, and it shall be for who? For Aaron and his sons. And they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. We're literally talking about the bread of the presence here that sat in the temple. Not even the Levites were allowed to eat this. Only the priests. So why is this okay? Especially in the context of David lying to the priests. And why would Jesus use this story as an illustration? 1 Samuel 21, verse 6. So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. So, quick question. 
If Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, died immediately for offering strange fire before the altar, why didn't David die immediately when he ate the holy bread? Guess what? If this is your question, and for a long time it was mine, then you, my friend, like me, are focused more on the rules than the situation. Troubling thought, isn't it? Can the one be okay and the other not? Back to the David story, verse 7. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. This is a very loaded identity. Edomite, he is a descendant of Esau. He's not even of Israel. And it's a crazy part of this story with terrible consequences. But it's always a troubling statement. Why was he detained before the Lord? Shouldn't the Lord have made sure he wasn't there? We finish this story, and frankly, it doesn't get any better, though the next part does promote, does provide a moment of mirth, at least in my mind. 1 Samuel 21, verse 10 and David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. That's the Philistines. So David has fled to the Philistines. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands, and made marks on the doors of the gate, and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen, that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? I love that line, one of my favorite in the Bible. Do I lack madmen? I've got all of you. That's a line that can only come from an exasperated king. But now the story really gets ugly. And we go to the next chapter, 1 Samuel 22, verse 7. And Saul said to his servants who stood about him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite, who stood by the servants of Saul, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob to Ahimelech the son of Ahitub. And he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech the priest, the son of Ahitub, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Here now, son of Ahitub. And he answered, Here I am, my lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me? You and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day. 
Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David? Who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time I have inquired of God for him? No. Let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David, and they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put out their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, You turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests, and he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he put to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. So you see what happens when we lie and break the rules? Shouldn't that be the lesson here? I want that to be the lesson here. Maybe there is a lesson here to learn that's something like that, but that doesn't seem to be the lesson that either the Old Testament or the New Testament is trying to teach, which is troubling because it forces some things out of us that we might not want to give, like actually spending time considering the situations rather than attempting to rigidly follow the rules. Which kind of brings us back to where we started with this story from Luke. What we have from our quick journey back to the Old Testament is that David lied to the priests, David took holy bread on false pretense, David ate that bread, David fled to the Philistines, David got scared, David pretended to be a crazy man, and in the end he contributed significantly to many priests and their families being killed. And this is the story Jesus chooses as an illustration about rules. But you see, that's the thing. This story isn't about rules. That's what the Pharisees are getting wrong. And that's what I kept, or maybe better, I keep getting wrong. It's not a story about rules. It's a story about human need. There is actually only one true parallel in the story from Luke and the story from 1 Samuel. And here it is. Someone was hungry and the means existed for them to be fed. That's the only parallel. Nothing else in these stories is alike. Nothing else in the theme, nothing else in the context, nothing else in the rules we're talking about. The only similarities in the story is in both stories, someone was hungry and there was a means by which they could be fed. It's not a story about rules. It's a story about human need. In both cases, the argument of Jesus is the same. 
If there is a way to feed a hungry person, they should be fed regardless of the rules. It's troubling in its simplicity, isn't it? We spend all that time reading the story and being all upset about those things. It's really about none of that. David was hungry. There was a mean to feed him. The disciples was hung, were hungry. There was a means to feed them. It's very simple. Luke chapter 6, verse 1. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? I mean, the clue is there, right? We just don't see it. Did you read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him? And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. This particular story also appears in the book of Matthew and the book of Mark. And in those places, there are pieces added to the telling of this story. Luke really has the shortest version. There are pieces added to the telling that bring out certain elements. And as we, as we close here today, I want to use those references to bring out a couple elements here. So Matthew chapter 12, if you want to read along, Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. Jesus said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how, the, how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Okay, this should sound familiar to you. This passage, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting from Hosea 6, 6. But this is not the first time he's done this. And it's not the first time he's done this in the context of criticism that he's receiving from the Pharisees about his behavior. The last time he brought this passage out, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, was when he ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. And now once again, in the context of eating, here it comes again. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You see, if you get too focused on the rules, you miss the point. Yes, the rules exist for a reason, but the reason is not to withhold food from hungry people. And those people don't even need to be starving, it seems. And they can be in the middle of lying. And you still give them food if you can. It's a pretty simple concept, isn't it? So before I make this next point on this, let's invite the uh, band back up because we're almost at the end. I want to add one more piece to this. 
Now, this is a little bit of a turn from where we've been focused, but I think you've got the key point so far that when our rules begin to keep us from doing basic acts of kindness for one another, it's not the acts of kindness that are wrong, it's the rules that are wrong. But I want to add a piece specifically related to Sabbath. Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 25. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So now I want to go general with that concept first before we go specific. The general concept here, he's speaking specifically about Sabbath and the concept of it being made for man, not man for the Sabbath. But I want to suggest to you this applies to rules in general. Regarding anything for which there are rules, proper rules are made for the people, not people made for the rules. And when the rules no longer are helpful, it's the rules that need to go. It is more important to feed a hungry person than it is to follow a rule. Situations matter. I grant that. And we will need to use wisdom and discernment. But we must never violate deep principle for the sake of rules. But now let's be specific. Sabbath was made for you and all of the people on the earth. And of all the people on the earth, you are some of the few who know to take advantage of it. But then here's your question. Are you taking advantage of it? Are you resting from the restlessness of the rest of your life, even some of the fun parts of the rest of your life? Are you using this time, this Sabbath day, as a time to connect with the Lord? Are you taking God up on His promise? His promise is, if you labor six days and take a rest on the Sabbath, I will make sure you have enough and more than you would have if you worked yourself to death every day. That's the promise. Are you taking him up on it? You see, in order for Sabbath to be special, it must be different. But we don't make it special by making it just like every other day. The Sabbath was made for you. Will you cherish it or will it be to you a common thing? Keeping Sabbath rules is not what Sabbath is for. And human need overrides the rules, whatever they are. So go ahead and eat the heads of grain if you're hungry. But don't let stupid rules keep you from the blessing you might have if you will be thoughtful and self-regulated in the concept of what Sabbath is to be. 
what does it mean to you? Don't be a Pharisee. Hey, you're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. Don't be that. But then don't be someone who gets no blessing from it. There's, there's got to be a place in there, right? There's got to be a sweet spot where we walk with Jesus in specialness on this day, where we acknowledge what the rest of the world doesn't even seem to know, we don't have to work every day. We're allowed to take a break. We're allowed to have special family time. We're allowed to go to each other's houses and share an experience. We're allowed to come here and, and sing these songs and have this amazing time of worship. And we don't have to stop by the grocery store on the way home because we did that yesterday so that today would be special. See, I'm, not, I'm not trying to say rules here. I'm just trying to say, what does it take in order to make it special? I remember sometimes in Florida, I would go to the grocery store on Sunday about midday and I'd see all these people dressed for church who obviously had just come from the service and now they're getting food. And I thought, what a shame to lose the mood. Now, I'm not telling you that's a rule. If you're hungry, get what you need. But what I'm saying is with a little intentionality and investment, what we have is a gift. Let's not get lost in the rules, but let's not throw it out as nothing. Jesus is calling us to a life of richness and fullness. We've got to trust him. He's the way maker. He will show us how. Let's trust him.